1: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode
2: is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
0: The Hargan women seemed to have it all.
2: We were blessed. My mom was amazing.
0: But detectives would soon discover...
3: Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true.
2: I am just praying to God. This is a
0: sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker The Hargan Family Killings
3: wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy.
0: Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's family stories include an act of outstanding bravery on the high seas, a transatlantic friendship, a plate of dodgy sandwiches, and a so-called Ordinary Soldiers' War. We begin with this story from Oliver dunn Dear James, Al, and everyone at the pod, and all independent company members. My wife, Hannah, and I have really enjoyed listening to the Family Stories episodes. I suspect, like most listeners, I'm trying to find out all I can about the wartime experiences of my relatives. The story I would like to tell was first told to my brother and I, when we were boys in the mid-1980s. I remember my mother telling us and then hugging us tightly in floods of tears because she was so moved by it. Our great, great uncle on my mother's side was called Oliver Reed, I'm named after him. He joined the Navy as a boy and enjoyed a long career throughout the first three decades of the 20th century. He served aboard HMS Noble at Jutland in 1916 and retired from the Navy in 1935. Oliver had three sons, Alfred, known as Bert, Leonard and James, and this story is about Bert. In 1942, Bert, aged 18, was aboard HMS Cornwall, a heavy cruiser. He was the ship's telephone operator while she escorted convoys between Ceylon and the Sundar Strait in the Dutch East Indies, which lies between the Indonesian islands of Java and Sumatra. In March that year, Cornwall was sent to Colombo, Ceylon, in preparation for a possible Japanese advance into the Indian Ocean. At the start of April, HMS Cornwall and her sister ship HMS Dorsetshire were deployed into the Indian Ocean and sent to meet the carrier HMS Hermes with a view to escorting her to port. At 13.40 hours on the 5th of April, both ships, approximately 200 miles into their journey to the southwest of Ceylon, were spotted and shadowed by a plane from the Japanese heavy cruiser Tone. Tone was part of the Japanese task force, which launched 315 aircraft aiming to attack Colombo in the Easter Sunday raid. The Cornwall and Dorsetshire were in its path, and shortly after being spotted, a formation of between 60 and 80 Aichi D-3A dive bombers from three Japanese carriers attacked. Steaming at full speed and about four miles apart, both British cruisers were fatally hit and within 10 minutes the Dorsetshire had sunk to be followed by the Cornwall five minutes later. There were 1,122 survivors from both ships who went on to spend 30 hours in the water before being rescued. Sadly, Four hundred and twenty five men didn't make it, and one of these was Bert. On Monday the fifteenth of june nineteen forty two, an article appeared on the front page of the Daily Mirror. The headline was Bravest Boy of the War, and the article described the actions and heroism of an unknown sailor on duty in the telephone room on board HMS Cornwall, as told by a survivor. In my possession is a treasured family heirloom a small newspaper cutting, first kept by my granny and also from the Daily Mirror. It's dated August 1942. The headline reads, This is War's Bravest Boy. It goes on to reveal the identity of the young telephone operator on HMS Cornwall, and it reads as follows. This is War's Bravest Boy. His name was Alfred Rupert Reed, 18. He lived in Welling, Kent, his story was first told on the front page of the Daily Mirror on June the 15th under the heading Bravest Boy of the War. Only yesterday, nearly five months after his death, he was revealed as the boy who, just before the cruiser Cornwall was sunk by Japanese dive bombers in the Indian Ocean, was working at the ship's telephone switchboard. It was Reed who, while bombs were screaming down on the ship from 60 bombers, rang the officer in charge of communications and in a calm voice asked, What shall I do, sir? The telephone station is flooding. You had better leave the station at once, ordered the officer. I can't, sir, replied ordinary seaman Reed. Both my legs are off. Reed's parents, who live in Swanley Road, read of his heroism and devotion to duty, but did not realize that the young hero was their son until a few days ago, when a sailor knocked at the door and told Mr. Reed the story. Bert is remembered on the Chatham Naval Memorial, which I try to visit every year. The story doesn't end there. In March, 2016, I was going through my emails when a message from ancestry.com appeared. I had uploaded all the family info onto the site a few years previously and had not looked at it for a while. Usually I would delete these messages straight away, but this time I read it. It was a message from a lady in the North of England who'd seen a Facebook post by the parish council of Swallowfield village in Berkshire and suggested I look too the parish council had conducted a community cleaning day two men from the local fishing association waded along the river Loddon, clearing rubbish and came across an old and rusty cash box they returned to the village hall prized it open and found within a clump of sodden paper and a group of medals upon inspection the name oliver j reed was read around the edge of one of them and this was the subject of the facebook post and appealed to relatives to make themselves known as the parish would like to return the medals to the family. I responded and within a month was in the village hall at Swallowfield with my mum and Hannah for an official handing over ceremony. The group of medals comprised three First World War medals, a George V Silver Jubilee Medal from 1935 and a Royal Navy Long Service Medal. These all belonged to my great uncle Oliver. The other three were from the second world war and comprised a 1939 to 45 star a 1939 to 45 war medal and a burma star which must have been posthumously awarded to bert to have the medals back with the family again is truly wonderful i've no idea how they ended up in the river in berkshire but i've had them framed with a photograph of uncle oliver and a copy of the cutting and they hang on my wall in pride of place i returned to swallowfield a few months later and sang a fundraising concert of nautical songs in the village church and we will be forever grateful to the good people of Swallowfield. Yours, Oliver dunn
2: Next we have this from Nicky Faulkner. My story is about an American friend of my granddad's. Frank Godfrey was my granddad he was studying engineering aged 18 in Leipzig when the First World War began, and as a result he was interred for the duration in Ruhlenbund Camp. After the war he went back to England and began his engineering career. He worked for the John Taylor Bell Foundry in Loughborough, a job that took him all over the world, especially to the United States. So when the Americans arrived here in the Second World War, my granddad decided he wanted to meet some. One unit was billeted at Woodhouse Eaves, near where he lived, so he took himself along there, And that's how he met ken tate ken tate was born in 1917 in liverpool but emigrated with his family to pennsylvania when he was two he enlisted age 24 in the u.s army in february 1942 attended airborne school at fort benning georgia and was assigned to the alabama regiment in september 1942 which later became part of the 82nd airborne division in april 1943 he was shipped overseas he landed in africa in may 1943 and fought throughout the North Africa and Italian campaigns. In 1944, he arrived in England. I don't know exactly how Frank specifically struck up a friendship with 26-year-old Ken, but the friendship they developed lasted for the rest of their lives. He spent time with the whole family, with my grandma Evelyn, and my dad John, and his sister Betty as children. Ken was dropped into Normandy on D-Day and fought all the way through the Battle of the Bulge sending Frank photos of them, waiting for it all to kick off in December 1944. A note on the back of one photo even said, All quiet at the moment. My dad said he was led to believe that Ken was one of the most decorated NCOs of the war. He was awarded the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart with Cluster, and the Airborne Wings with four Jump Stars. He was awarded his Silver Star for actions on the 3rd of January 1945. This is his citation. March 17, 1945, the President of the United States of America, authorised by Act of Congress July 9, 1918, takes pleasure in presenting the Silver Star to Sergeant Kenneth H. Tate, United States Army, for gallantry in action, while serving with Company A, 1st Battalion, 505th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 82nd Airborne Division, in action on 3rd of January 1945, Belgium. The platoon was advancing behind tanks across open terrain when Sergeant Tate spotted a machine-gun position, whose fire was such that it had to be put out of action before his unit could accomplish their mission. Making a courageous and instantaneous decision, Sergeant Tate, with no regard for his own safety, assaulted the enemy strongpoint by himself, although he knew he would not only be subjected to frontal fire from the Germans, but also from the tanks who believed all friendly infantry to be behind them. Advancing fearlessly over flat, open terrain, Sergeant Tate first fired his anti-tank rifle grenade at the position and then advanced rapidly, throwing hand grenades. All four of the enemy were killed and the gun silenced by the single-handed attack. Sergeant Tate's courageous aggressiveness was a magnificent contribution to the success of the mission and was in keeping with the finest traditions of the airborne forces. Ken was discharged in September 1945, but re-enlisted two months later. He was sent to Germany with a service unit and didn't return to the US until December 1953. He married Anna in 1947, and visited the UK after the war. In 1952, he stayed with Frank and family. Ken died in December 1965, aged just 47, and was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. When Anna died in 1996, she was buried with him. Best wishes, Nicky Faulkner.
0: next story comes from Lindsay Gordon. Hi guys. First, an obligatory thank you for the amazing pod and for your convivial company of an evening. I wanted to share what little there is of my dad's story. He was a driver in the Royal Engineers and landed just a few days after D-Day. Although I am fascinated with this period, I find it difficult to find info on the more ordinary war he would have experienced. This is what I do know. My father John Douglas Gordon, known as Jack, was a private in the Royal Engineers. While serving, he was also inevitably known as Flash. His service record somewhat lacks detail. 11th June 1944, embarked UK. 5th July 1945, embarked for UK. Which leaves me trying to find out what the war was like for men like my dad, who were not fighters on the front line, but who played their part nevertheless. I find this difficult in the face of the mountain of information and tales of heroes and daring do around D-Day itself and the ensuing action. Dad had only previously shared a few precious details. He initially drove supplies ashore in the Mulberry Harbour at Gold Beach. I've read that he would have likely experienced continued shelling at Aramanche. He spoke of seeing bodies in the water in his first days there. He drove three-ton Bedford trucks through France, Holland and Belgium, seeing Antwerp, Nijmegen, Ostend, Brussels, Vestorpf, Mons and Amiens. He turned 21 somewhere in Holland or Belgium. It's difficult to imagine what it must have been like during his year and 24 days in Europe. It's hard to think about how he must have felt. He spoke of driving in the blackout and hitting a dog, of a roadside explosion one day. His buddy received serious facial injuries, but my dad was using a cushion to boost his driving position and this saved him from harm. He spoke of staying behind to get a haircut while his mates went out one evening. He told me his mates were all killed that night when a bomb hit the cinema they were in. I always wondered how much truth there was in these stories and how much his memory may have changed or magnified things over the years. Then I heard you on the pod talking about the V2 bombing of the Rex Cinema on the 16th of December 1944 and I realised that this part of his story was probably not hyperbole. 296 Allied servicemen were killed in the wrecks and a further 194 injured. On the Commonwealth War Grave Commission site, I found the names of four men from my dad's company at that time, the 965 Inland Water Transport Operating Company, who died on that day and rest in Schunzelhof Cemetery in Antwerp. Were these the mates my dad spoke of? John Wilfred Ratcliffe, 21. George Walsh, 36. Francis Stevens, 21. John Edward Groves, 20. It took a week to dig the bodies from the rubble. Would my dad have been involved? Would he have had the chance to see his friends laid to rest? These and all of my questions about my dad's war will probably always now remain unanswered. In later life, my dad was a happy man, though he seemed fixated by tragedy. In his diaries, he would note disasters, the Zabruga ferry, Piper Alpha, and the passing of many, many friends and acquaintances. He was one of those men seemed to know everyone and he attended a lot of funerals as though he had a compulsion to pay his respects. I can't help but think this must have stemmed from his experiences during the war and I wish I'd had the chance to understand and know him more. He died suddenly in 1998 after a routine surgery aged 74. We had discussed using his recovery time to record his life story. That was not to be. One day I planned to visit Schunzelhof on his behalf. To pay our respects all the best Lindsay gordon daughter of flash
2: our last story is from pete aston dear james and al love the podcast i've listened to every one mostly whilst trudging around fields with the dogs so far i bought too many models books even a drum kit no cricket back yet, as I can't play cricket. But then I can't play drums either. My great-uncle was Lieutenant Commander William Neville Jones, DSC, RNVR. He started the war as an observer in the fleet air arm on swordfish, albacores and fireflies, then ended it in Japan in what was always referred to as naval intelligence with the family, said as echoes from the Goons, which I probably didn't do very well. A samurai sword hung underneath his naval sword in the house. Apparently, he received it in surrender from its owner, but I don't know the circumstances. Like many other veterans, Uncle Neville never talked about his war, and I didn't ask. I knew he was in the Navy. I knew he flew in the fleet air arm. Everything else I've learnt has been sparked by listening to your podcast and a lot of internet research. Uncle Neville was reported missing when Ark Royal was torpedoed, but this appears to have been a mistake. He was on Operation Coolboy to resupply Malta with albacores and swordfish, but didn't fly off with the rest of the squadron. He subsequently rejoined them at Halfar, but by that time the telegram had already been sent to his family in the UK. He completed two tours of Malta, with a mention in dispatches in June 1942 for great bravery, skill and determination in torpedo and dive bombing attacks on enemy shipping and aerodromes. A DSC followed in 1943 for outstanding bravery and skill in many successful sorties against enemy shipping in the Mediterranean while operating from Malta and North Africa. I find his logbook entries fascinating they're so matter-of-fact. For example, found two MV and three DR near Marettimo. Attacked one merchant vessel of four to five thousand tons. Probable. Bright moon. Fair amount of flak. Reasonably accurate. Lower plane hit. Returned with engine trouble. My favourite entry is from the 16th of February 1942. A night torpedo attack in an Albacore with pilot sub-Lieutenant Bunyan. Attack on Italian fleet of four cruisers and nine destroyers off Cape Spartivento. Little opposition. Weather fair, dark, no moon. Both Pirant and I felt very ill due to sandwiches eaten before takeoff. Consequently, my plot was very inaccurate. I'd love to know more about his involvement in naval intelligence. He stayed in the Navy after the end of hostilities, moving to the Royal Naval Reserve. He was placed on the retired list in 1954 and transferred to Spec BR. Any ideas what Spec BR was? Special branch, perhaps? My great aunt used to tell stories of Uncle Neville being visited after the war by men in black who would talk at length with him in private. All he would say was, Naval Intelligence. I miss Uncle Neville. He was like a third grandfather to me, and I spent many happy hours playing with dinky army vehicles and building dens outside his house halfway up a mountain in North Wales. Keep up the podcast. They got me through lockdown. Kind regards. Pete Aston.
0: That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members' site under the family stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. We look forward to reading your family stories. Goodbye for now.